read from the Bible. At City Light, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. And we are going to read from one of the Gospels, John chapter 1. It's John chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. It'll be up on the screen um, if you don't have a Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not, uh, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And then we have a second reading from John chapter 8. And it is verse 12, and it says, Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, just to double back on, um, on what Kirli was inviting you to, our carol service is going to be a great time this year. And what a promo. We don't have real candles. So some, some, some carols events try to emphasize fun. We're more about safety, which in its own way, it's kind of fun. So welcome, it'd be great to have you along to that. Um, but uh, this morning, we're continuing in our series uh, called I Am, which is a series about the seven I Am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John that reveal who he is and what he is like. Jesus doesn't leave us guessing about who he is or what his intentions are or what he came to do. He explains himself clearly through the Gospels. And we see this through his I Am statements. And as Kirli read out just before, the second that Jesus makes is to claim that he is the light of the world. I don't know if anyone's ever asked you the, the novelty question of um, it, when, when you see a black and white cow, is it a white cow with black spots or a black cow with white spots? You might have heard the other version, which is about a zebra. Is it a white horse with black stripes or black horse with white stripes? It pops up in kids' movies from time to time or as kind of icebreakers or that sort of thing. And we're familiar with the idea of it, that it's kind of a sort of a humorous poker, like how do you, how do you conceptualize this animal? Essentially, which is the base, what's the primary color, and which one is the kind of the secondary? But here's a question that's slightly, I guess, a little bit deeper than just questions about animals. But we live in a world that is a mix of good and bad, of good and evil, of light and dark. And how are we to think about our world? Is darkness the norm? And light is the momentary interruption. Is human experience essentially darkness with momentary uh, seconds of, of light? Or is it essentially good and it's evil that's the interruption? Because like a cow or a zebra, it's not immediately obvious as you look out into the world which one predominates, which one is lasting. And you could even say, well, look, why does it matter? Like with the question about a cow or a zebra, in, in the end, it's just... It just is. Why do you need to have any particular opinion on it? But I think it does matter because hope matters. And hope very much depends on how you think about the world. If darkness is the base reality, 
if that's what we're to expect of life, if that's ultimately what wins and what prevails, then that has a certain implication for how we view the future, doesn't it? But if it's the opposite, if it's light that will prevail and goodness, that also has an impact on how we look at the future. Bertrand Russell was a British mathematician and an atheist. And I don't think he would describe himself as a nihilist, but he did famously say this. He said, There is darkness without, and when I die there will be darkness within. There is no splendor, nor vastness anywhere. Only triviality for a moment, and then nothing. It would have been such a party to be at his birthday, wouldn't it? And he says it a little bit tongue-in-cheek and with some humor, as he often did. But his take on it is that darkness is reality. That's what's real. There's no meaning, no vastness. Eventually it will win, it is without, and one day it will be within. And light is just a brief flickering candle for a moment, and then it's gone. But I think we find we, we balk at that. And not only that, for those parents who are here and dedicating their kids, I'm sure you would balk at telling your kids that that's what the world is about. And that could be just because of moral cowardice, that that's the reality and we're not really willing to accept it. But I think, the, I think our objections to it are a little bit more authentic than that. I think we, in our heart we don't actually believe it and the way we live doesn't reflect that we believe that that's true. We live as though things matter and as though they count and as though it's worth working towards good. But the question is, what basis do we have for this? And this is what Jesus speaks into when he makes the bold claim that he is the light of the world. He claims not to know the light or to know the way to the light or to know how to find light in dark times. He says, I am the light. And we find this claim in the book of John, which we're going through at the moment. And John was a follower of Jesus and he heard all these things that Jesus taught and recorded them for us. And the book of John is really a biography of Jesus, of his life, his ministry, his teachings, and then finally his death and resurrection. And in chapter 8, Jesus is having a pretty in-depth conversation with some very committed religious people. And it's in the context of this that he, that he drops a bomb. In John 8:12, we read this. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When you ask someone who they are, Normally, at least in our culture, it's normally just that you're asking their name. But if you were to press a little bit deeper into the conversation, if you ask someone, no, who are you really? What are you about? Generally, the conversation will drop to people's goals or their deepest desires. That's different to what they might respond to that by saying, look, I'm a music lover, a nature lover, I'm passionate about justice or the environment. You, you, we'll talk about our desires and our passions. And this is different to other cultures. For other cultures, if you were to ask someone who they were, they might be more likely to refer to the fact that they're a son or a daughter of so-and-so or that they're a part of the family trade or business. But in a Western culture, we tend to talk about our deepest desires. That's who we are. But I don't imagine you've ever heard anyone say anything like, I am the light of the world. That is a grand statement about yourself indeed. Even without understanding what it means, it's grandiose. Who out there would ever say that they themselves have some sort of global importance? Now, some people on socials do post as though their every thought and every meal is as important to the world as it is to them, but no one would have the gall to say it out loud, even if they believed it. But here, Jesus, in the middle of a conversation, says to these religious leaders, I am the light of the world. 
I'm the source of all life and goodness at the very center of reality. And so it's not hard to understand what the response then was to that. A debate kicks off. And again, if you've had in mind that Jesus was kind of a, a polite, compliant type who just sort of kept to himself and, I don't know, built a hut in the woods or something like that, that's very much not the picture we get of him through the Gospels. That he does like to provoke discussion, and not, not in a trolly kind of provocative way in that sense, but when, when it comes to thinking about things and life deeply, he does actually like to provoke debate. And here, the debate kicks off. And of course, the question that everyone has for Jesus is after he's made a claim like, I'm the light of the world, well, they ask then, well, who are you to make a claim like that? And they go back and forth over this and that. But then at the end of it, Jesus decides to kick this conversation just into another gear. And if it wasn't heated enough, this is what he drops into his conversation with a bunch of fellow Jewish leaders. He says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus was a Jewish man talking to fellow Jewish people, and he brings up one of the most important Jewish figures, which was Abraham. Abraham was considered the father of Israel, so everybody knew who he was talking about. No one was going to ask him, which Abraham are you on about? When he says Abraham, they know who he's talking about. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And you're not hearing it incorrectly. He should have said, before Abraham was, I was. But he's not confused. He's saying something and he's calibrating what he says very carefully for the people who are listening. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Why? When the Old Testament, in an incredibly important book to the Jewish people, in, in the book of Exodus, that details their liberation from slavery, there's a key figure named Moses who has who meets God, or really has an encounter with God. And in that encounter, God says to him, I'm going to send you to my people, and you're going to set them free from the greatest known power at the time, which was Pharaoh. And understandably, Moses seems a little overawed by this. And he says, when I go to the people to tell them that I'm going to set them free from the greatest known power in the world, who at least do I tell them has sent me? And he's asking God, what is your name? And God replies... I am who I am. What an incredible answer. God doesn't say my name is so-and-so, son of such-and-such. He doesn't define himself by anything outside of himself. He says, I am who I am. So when it comes to names, you always wrestle with these names because it's going to be a permanent thing. Many of the parents who are dedicating kids here today had to walk the fine line between choosing a name that's kind of not, not too common but not too edgy either. And hopefully as you do that, you don't find yourself in the middle of a name trend and, and think you've done something really original only to find that every kid at preschool is named that. But when it comes to names, you do have to think carefully because they're going to carry that with them their whole life. When we had our eldest child, we actually were umming and ahhing about just making his middle name, we're not that edgy, but just his middle name, Ti Tiger. And when he was born a redhead, we thought it's a sign from God. But at the, last second, at the last second, we backed out because as we imagine life in, we're like, look, it, 
is this really just for us and in some ways for our amusement right now? Because for the rest of his life, he's going to have to sign forms and people will make a joke like, rah, and he'll be like, huh, haven't heard that before. And he's going to have to endure endless conversations like that. And we're like, we, we just can't do it. So you can imagine our surprise when we moved to the house where we're renting right now and our neighbors um, welcomed us, introduced themselves and their kid named Tiger. And we said, oh, we were thinking about naming the middle name of our kid, Tiger. And they're like, why didn't you? Like, it's not important. Anyway. <laughs> but it's a big deal to think about because names are a reminder that you did not create yourself. And you, can't, you can rebel against that and you can have your name legally changed and all of that. But it's a reminder that someone else created you. But when God has asked his name, he just says, I am who I am. Uncreated, pure existence, pure light, pure goodness, pure reality. One of the earliest questions children ask is who made God? And of course the answer is what makes him God is that he was not made. And this of course is a matter of faith. But whatever you believe about why we're here and how everything came to be is also a matter of faith. You must either believe that there is a God or that there isn't one. You must believe by faith if there is no God, that the universe self-generated out of nothing. And we've obviously never seen that before. Everything we experience in life is a part of a, an unending, well, it is an ending sequence, I guess, but a sequence of cause and effect that we can trace back. And so if we were created from nothing, we have to ask the questions, where did nothing get the resources from to produce everything that we see now today? But also, why did it change its state at all? But similarly... It's by faith that you believe that there is a God who is an uncreated creator. And that solves the questions of where do you get the resources from to create everything. But it introduces questions like, how can someone be uncreated? We've never seen that before either. The question is really, which of these requires less faith? Which has the greatest explanatory power? When the claim of the Bible is that there is a God who is an uncreated creator, who made all things... And he gives himself the name, I am. I'm not dependent on anything beyond myself or outside of myself. God is pure life. He is the great I am. And so the Israelite people were, were then called to call God by his name, the great I am. So they would say, we're going to pray to I am. Or we're going to devote our lives to I am. Or we have faith in I am. And so it was a reminder again and again and again that God's name is I am. That is who he is. And so this is why when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, it provokes such a response from the audience. That's why they pick up stones and they want to kill him, because they understand what he's claiming. That Jesus, the man before them, is claiming to be God, the uncreated creator, come down to his creation, to his people. And that's why he claims he has the authority to say something like, I am the light of the world. I'm the source of all goodness and even life itself. Now, I don't mean to skim past this like it's no extraordinary claim. And if you are here and visiting this week, I imagine that that strikes you as an extraordinary claim, that a man would claim to be God. And that is the central claim of the Bible, and it's an extraordinary one. And we run a course here called Alpha that we're, we're doing at the moment that dives into the question of whether or not a modern, rational, scientific person has any basis to believe these claims, whether there's any evidence upon which this faith could be based. But perhaps you can understand why we don't go over these arguments each week. 
But it certainly is the case that the Bible claims this extraordinary thing. That Jesus is God. That he is the light of the world. And that he can say things like, Anyone who believes in me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. His claim is that to know him is to guarantee that you will not be overcome by evil and death and by the wickedness of this world. That in him your sin is forgiven, your life is made new, and you have life indestructible in him. And therefore he is the source of all joy and hope. And this is something that we need, even desperately. Because no matter who you are or what your worldview, to live without hope is an unthinkable thing. Even returning to the idea of nihilism, you may have, you may have heard of a book written by Wendy Safret called Sunny Nihilism. And her book is an attempt to kind of address the PR issue that nihilism has. If you're not familiar with that worldview, it's the view that, look, we aren't made, there isn't really any meaning or purpose to life, we just are and then we aren't. Um, but understandably, that sounds pretty bleak. And so her thought on it is that, no, actually, this, this belief can be quite liberating and life-giving. And she wrote an article in 2019 uh, on sunny nihilism. And she writes this. She says, I was chronically stressed at work, overwhelmed by expectations, grasping for a sense of achievement or greater purpose, and tiptoeing towards full-on exhaustion. Then it hit me. Who cares? One day I'll be dead, and no one will remember me anyway. This is delightful. She also writes, since discovering I'm worthless, my life has felt precious. Which is an interesting perspective. For her, she was saying this belief was actually quite liberating. It kind of set her free from the grind of trying to, you know, eke out a career. And actually it kind of set her free to just live life kind of loose-handedly. Now, it might, it might be the fact that I myself am a convinced Christian that gives me a skepticism about it. But it does seem to me like believing something in spite of the evidence rather than with it. Which again is something that often Christians accuse, are accused of. And you might say, well look, maybe that's the case, but who cares? If it works, it works. But my question would be, does it actually work? Is it actually working? Many people of all ages in our culture have a fear of aging. Bo Burnham is a comedian who wrote a comedy special in 2020, 2020 or 2021. Maybe it was written in 2020 and came out in 2021. And he wrote a song that connected mostly with people, 18s to 20s were the people who loved it the most. But it, the, the show actually just blew up. It went huge. But he wrote a song about the fear of aging. And I'll just give you a couple of the, the sanitized lyrics to give you a sense of it. He writes this, and just keep in mind his age. It says, I used to run for miles, I used to ride my bike, I used to wake up with a smile and go to bed with a dream, but now I'm turning 30. <laughs> I used to be the young one, got used to meeting people who weren't used to meeting someone who was born in 1990, but now I'm turning 30. When he was 27, my granddad fought in Vietnam. When I was 27, I built a birdhouse with my mum. How am I turning 30? I used to make fun of boomers, in retrospect, a little bit too much. Now all these Zoomers are telling me that I'm out of touch. Okay, yeah, well, your phones are poisoning your minds. So when you develop a dissociative mental disorder in your late 20s, don't come crawling back to me. I'm turning 30. And then it rounds out with the refrain, now all my stupid friends are having stupid children, and on and on, which is perfectly fitting for today, right? 
Now, it's, it's hilarious, but it does kind of have like this sort of panicked laughter to it, that it's like, ha, 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 but this is a real crisis. And many people who've heard the song are experiencing the same thing. But we feel it. Whether it's 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, whatever, it is, whatever base 10 number you choose, as we mark, move past these hallmarks of life, there is a fear. And I think the fear is this. The fear is that all the good things, or at least the best things, are in the past, and that it's the difficult and challenging things that are yet to come. Almost like the darkness is kind of closing in. And lots of people feel this. For the youngest generation, it's a fear of working to your 95 because you can't afford a house and so you'll be on the treadmill forever and what will that be like? Singles living in fear of a partnerless future. Couples afraid of bringing kids into a world where there is so much darkness. Couples with kids then afraid of raising teenagers. Everyone's afraid of raising teenagers. Do you know what the word of the year was last year for 2022? It was permacrisis. Permacrisis. Describing the, the state of constant chaos, confusion and crisis that it feels like we're in. A state of uninterrupted crisis. Sounds like we're all afraid that the darkness is closing in and ultimately will win. And what is living or life without hope? And this is why Jesus claims it matters as well that he is the light of the world. Let me read for you the introduction to the Gospel of John again, as Kirily read it out before. We read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The claim is that to know Jesus is to know the light of life. And what it means to believe and to trust in Jesus as the light of the world is to know that you know what life is about and the Creator. It's to know that He has made everything and that He has made you, that He loves you. It's to know that Jesus came into this world and faced darkness and yet was not overcome by it. That even as wicked people put Him to death for wicked purposes, that the life in him was too strong and that he rose again to new life and now offers that eternal life to anyone who would believe in him. And to know with this that you are a child of God. And this is what it means to have hope, to have a source of light in dark times. And the reason that hope is so significant is because I think in many ways it's in short supply. Hope is different to optimism. Optimism is more the sense that based on our circumstances or ourselves, as we look at what's happening around us, we have some confidence that things will get better in the future. So people write a lot about how optimistic things were in the United States in the 60s and 70s because as people sort of did the calculations and saw what was happening in the economy, there was just a sense that, hey, things in the future are actually going to get better. But the problem with optimism is that as soon as circumstances change, all hope seems extinguished. Unless we have a hope that's founded in something beyond ourselves, that we ourselves can't let, let down, or that our circumstances can't let down, 
we'll often find ourselves bereft of hope. Jesus claims that to know him is to have a source of light no matter how dark the times get. And so I just encourage you, if you're here and you're not sure about the claims of Jesus or you've never checked them out for yourself or haven't for a long time, to encourage you to, to do that again. We'd welcome you to come along to Alpha as we run it each on Monday nights. But also, if you came here with someone who is a believer, to even press into that and ask them about it. Because hope is too precious to be left alone. Jesus claims to be the light of life. It is worth weighing up whether or not there is anything to this claim. And if you are here and a believer, I just want to encourage you that day after day and week after week to fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith, the one who is the light of life. If you who are parents and dedicating your kids here this morning, when it feels like you are out of resources yourselves, where you're well in over your heads when it comes to looking after these kids, to trust in Christ in those moments. Remember, he calls you not to believe in your circumstances or in yourself, but in him. And that he will guide and lead you. And then if you are in a season, if you're a follower of him, where it does feel like it just feels dark at the moment, to know that there is a God who is ever-present and who loves you, and that there is a church community that can be praying for you even in this time. Because hope and the sense that we know the light of the world, whom darkness has not overcome, transforms the way we experience even dark times. You think of it in this way, Little kids learn reasonably early on. They do learn to fear the dark. At first, they love the dark, and parents will desperately try to make the rooms as dark as possible. They will try and cut out every crack of light. They'll get masking tape. They'll tape up the windows. They'll make it, they'll make it look pretty uninviting. But for a kid, that's, it's amazing for sleep at first. But as they get older, one of the sad realities is that kids somehow, at some point along the way, learn that things can be dangerous and that the dark is scary. But also what they learn, as we do, is that when night comes, it's always followed by day. We know this pattern so surely that when it starts to get dark at night, you never see the city break out in mass panic where people are like, my gosh, darkness is closing in. We'll never see again. It's, it's over. People know that the way that the rhythms work is there's night and then day and then night. To know that day is coming transforms how you experience the night. And for the believer, the trust and hope that Jesus ultimately is the light of the world, that he will prevail and that all who trust in him will never walk in darkness, is the hope that leads us through even dark times. I'm going to pray that that would be the case. Father, we praise you. You sent Jesus into the world as the light of the world, the one in whom there is life indestructible and on whom our our faith and our hope is founded. We praise you that by your great promises we can be sure that all who believe in him will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. And may this be our hope and our ever-present joy. And we pray these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.